Greg Weikamp is with us today on Next Gen Waterfronts. I've been wanting to have Greg on for uh, quite some time. Uh, Greg is very knowledgeable about waterfront redevelopment and planning for it uh, to exquisite and wonderful detail. Uh, so it's a real treat to have him on board. Greg, do um, you mind uh, telling us a little bit about yourself? I'm Greg Weikamp with uh, Edgewater Resources, and um, I focus on building uh, waterfronts and marina projects uh, around the world. Um, my background is in landscape architecture and planning and community visioning. And um, we work at Edgewater Resources here to focus on building projects um, that really are about creating access to the water and identifying the value that creating access to the water uh, adds to communities and figuring out ways to get complex projects built. Here's the big question for the day, and that is, uh, I've enjoyed working with you on some waterfront plans and with others as well, but I know that you have a deep knowledge of all of the different kinds of components that go into waterfronts, um, they go into a successful waterfront. And you seem to have a good knack for figuring out how they work together or at least uh, stay out of each other's way, which is important sometimes too. Um, this is for large and small communities and as you said, all over the world. Um, my principal curiosities are, can you walk us through some of those components, marinas, parks, housing, hospitality, retail and dining, water trails and others, and talk about how uh, they're, uh, they're changing in your, in your view or how they haven't changed in your view in recent years. And since the uh, broadcast is called uh, Next Gen Waterfronts, we're particularly interested in, in how you see younger people, um, and I say younger people, that's an easy thing for me to say these days, generation, um, I'm sorry, uh, the millennials are up to age 80, are up to age 33 these days. So they're not youngsters anymore. Um, tell me what you think, Greg. You know, we think about waterfronts and it's, it's different, of course, whether you're a coastal environment on the, on the ocean or the intercoastal waterway, or if you're in the Great Lakes. Um, we have offices both in Florida that focus on coastal and Caribbean and, and uh, Central America, um, and then also the Great Lakes. Um, but, but the main issue that we focus on is, is access and the way people use the water. Um, historically, uh, access to the water was uh, somewhat, well, another way back, you know, we used to turn our backs on the water and we'd dump our pollutants in there and we'd put our factories there. Um, across the Midwest, as a lot of that industrial uh, activity has moved overseas, um, that's created a ton of opportunities uh, for communities to reclaim their waterfronts. And um, like you see in New York City, uh, you know, with uh, Hudson River Park and Brooklyn Bridge Park, uh, there's a tremendous interest in sort of reclaiming uh, post-industrial waterfronts to make it accessible for people to get down there. Um, probably the biggest change is a lot of development was really focused on maintaining this exclusivity of, uh, of the waterfront and the privacy for, you know, if you had enough money to buy in there, that was great and keep everybody else out. Um, our focus has been for the last 15 years with Edgewater Resources is really more focusing on um, how do we make that waterfront accessible to more people? Um, we do that through uh, a range of projects, um, a, a lot of hospitality and mixed use projects. We want to try and create as much activity and vibrancy on the waterfront as we can uh, with thoughtful development and density um, to, to maximize the amount of people we can get there while protecting the environment. Um, so when you think about uh, um, you know, a marina, for example, um, you know, the traditional marina design or the yacht club design of the past was about exclusivity. Everything's behind a fence and a gate and keep everyone else out. Uh, whereas today, 
Uh, we build our marinas to make them as public as possible and try to create as much activity for uh, the non-boating public uh, as we can. Uh, great examples at 31st Street Harbor in Chicago, um, where uh, it's a $100 million project and a thousand slips. Um, but the primary use of the, of the park space and the landside spaces as a neighborhood park as part of the Chicago waterfront. In fact, the only thing that's not open to the general public is, is the floating docks themselves. Um, so that's important. Um, there's some really big trends in uh, waterfront design, marina design, and boating design as it relates to younger folks, um, particularly with boating. Uh, you know, the average age of your boater, uh, boat owner is getting older and older. It's now uh, 56 or 57 years old, and it seems to creep up about six months in age every year. And uh, in a lot of cases, younger folks are either not interested in owning a boat or they're concerned about the maintenance. They didn't grow up uh, working on boats or, or boats just like your car have gotten so complicated uh, that the concern is if I'm out on the water and I have a problem, you know, am I going to know how to solve that? Um, a way to resolve that that has become ever more popular is, is really based on the sharing economy idea of, of uh you know, I don't want to own a boat, but I want access to a boat. So the idea of creating boat clubs where I can be a member of a club, um, you know, that club might own you know, five sailboats, three power boats, uh, maybe a fishing boat, maybe a cruiser, you know, different types of boats. And depending on what I want to do that day, um, I can I can take out a different boat um, from a from a user standpoint. That's fantastic because most people can't afford more than one boat if they can afford one boat at all. Uh, but to have access to a range of different boats is really interesting and popular. Uh, but more importantly, when you're out boating, everybody's always afraid of the cost of boating. Uh, when they come back in and you know they can say to the guy, hey, it's making a noise. Uh, there's some problem here. Uh, I'll see you next week. And they just walk away and, and magically the boat gets fixed by someone else. Uh, at the end of the season, they're not, they're not burdened with the responsibility of hauling the boat out, winterizing it, storing it, dealing with all of those issues. That's all taken care of by somebody else. Um, so really providing this higher level of service is very important to people now. Hey, Greg, let me, let me stop you for a second. Um, on this boat club idea, um, how, how many of them are, are there and are they spreading? Is there a pattern to their spread regionally or on certain kinds of water? There are, there are a number of, of sort of national, uh, companies There's freedom boat club, for example, is one. Um, and you know, they, they come into individual marinas and they work out deals with individual marinas. Uh, there are other places uh, in New York Harbor, for example, where there are small kind of independent uh, sailboat racing clubs, uh, where if you look at New York Harbor, for example, it's a perfect environment for a boat club. Um, a, a, good, a good comparison uh, in terms of, of density and supply is uh, the city of Chicago has, you know, call it 10 million people in the region and 6,000 slips on the waterfront. Um, add that probably another 10,000 slips on Lake Michigan. Uh, that are driven by Chicago residents, but are not in the city of Chicago itself. So maybe 15,000 slips for 10 million people. Uh, New York Harbor has or has 20 million people and has maybe 1,500 slips or 2,500 slips, a very small number in comparison, and um, not a lot of access. And so in a, mar in a market like that, um, there are a number of small independent boat clubs that uh, may have 500 or 1,000 members, um, and they're all using these boats. Um, so what that does is it creates opportunity for a lot of people to use a fewer number of boats. Uh, and there's some major advantages with that. Number one, um, if you have limited space, 
and you want to have, you know, a traditional marina, you might have a hundred slips, you might have a hundred boat owners. And sadly, a typical boat owner might take their boat out once a week, maybe, maybe twice a week if they're racing sailors. Uh, sometimes the boat doesn't leave the dock more than once or twice a month. Uh, from an environmental impact standpoint, you have a boat basically occupying a very limited amount of space, a very precious space, and it's not getting used much. Uh, if you take a dozen slips and set them aside for a boat club uh, in New York Harbor, those boats are going to go out every single day. And so for the same space and environmental impact of 12 boats, you're getting uh, you know, an incredible multiple in terms of use. And so if your goal is to get use and access to the water with a minimum of environmental impact and, and spatial impact, uh, a boat club is a fantastic way to do that. So there's really a way to, to look at, at boat clubs as every bit like Uber or Lyft or the others in terms of efficiently using a resource, you know, almost continuously. Uh, so that, so, that, so that, that actually, you know, enhances or at least it should theoretically improve uh, the care of the, of the machine because they want to keep it out there and available. And it also allows for quick changeovers with new technologies because the boats get worn out faster. It does. It does. It, 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 and it creates access to, to a better boat than you might be able to afford on your own. And, and again, the, you, the, not to, you know, to broadly generalize about younger generation, but we're finding uh, they are gen generally much more interested in a higher level of service. Um, they're willing to pay for the services uh, more than the stuff. And if they have access to a great boat and none of the headaches, uh, we found that to be very, very desirable. Um, it's a very profitable business model, um, but it's also really beneficial, again, environmentally. Uh, you know, Brooklyn Bridge Park, for example, their, their focus is creating access to the harbor. And there's no better way to do that than a boat club in terms of how many people can you get on the water in a given amount of space. And how about other ways that people get on the water? Are, have you seen an increase in things like party boats and event boats or tour boats? We have. Um, the, the, there's a number of things. There's the, the traditional yacht club, for example. Um, you know, where there's a, a, you know, a, a building someplace and then there's, there's clubs associated with it, with junior foundations and, and sailing schools and sailing clubs, um, for kids. That's certainly one way to do it. Um, we are seeing more barges, uh, where people are basically creating floating nightclubs. Um, uh, they're putting them out there. Um, there's a tremendous market in, in strong urban areas for, uh, you know, dinner cruises and, and basically, uh, they're really floating nightclubs in some cases. Again, in New York Harbor, there's a large market there where people will go out and it's a nice thing because you're on the boat, you're in a self-contained area. You don't have to worry about driving home, those sorts of things. Um, and people really relax and enjoy themselves. Um, I've seen more of it in the Great Lakes than I have uh, in the South. Um, but it tends, does tend to uh, go um, more to the, the more dense urban areas, of course. Is, is, it, is it almost a bit ironic now that we seem to have a lot more interest in getting on the water, whether it's through boat clubs or, uh, or through party boats or event boats or excursion boats, uh, at a time when, when the water is, uh, is, is actually viewed with by, increasingly by, by some people with a bit of fear with climate change uh, complications, uh, that we're trying to get out there more, too. Is, is, is there something that you see happening as far as how people will relate to the water and how that's going to change? Um, with uh, these uh, major weather events that we've had and other changes in how we look at water? That, again, is probably another one of the, you know, if you grew up boating um, and you, you're, you've been on the water and in, in, in uh, stormy conditions, you have a higher comfort level. Um, you know, whereas 
You know, the qualifications to own and drive a boat in most cases are the ability to write the check to buy the boat. Um, and that, that leads to uh, people with not necessarily the most amount of training. Um, uh, the people that get into it often really work hard to learn. Um, I grew up boating. I've always, I've, I've been on the water my whole life for almost 50 years now. Um, folks that are new to boating that didn't grow up with it or didn't have a close friend um, really need that opportunity to get on the water and uh, with some support. Um, so there's definitely that concern. Um, I think as it, as it comes around to things like sea level rise, uh, that's probably the biggest issue um, facing coastal communities, um, particularly urban areas. Uh, we're doing a tremendous amount of work in Florida, designing new marinas. Uh, where we're designing the marinas today around a sea level uh, condition that we don't expect for 50 or maybe 80 years. Um, and it's quite interesting to design something um, where you know you're, you're building things three, four, five feet higher than you would have otherwise, um, and all the all the associated impacts with that. And of course, it might look a little funny today to go out there and see something you know that looks like it's sticking up out of the water. And then the other interesting challenge is you think, well, I've, I've built my facility and my buildings and everything around this new sea level rise, but everything around me is not built to that level. It's a little bit weird. I might be building an island, um, but you see conditions in Miami where they're raising roads uh, at a cost of something like a million dollars a mile in some cases to raise roads, um, designing facilities where the lower levels are designed for water to flow uh, freely through, uh, you know, putting surface parking down on the bottom level and elevating the building. So there's a lot of strategies that respond to the increased flooding incidents, um, but it's an interesting scenario to see where that's going to go when the water actually comes up and stays up. Well, I think there's some other issues. Um, we're working on a project uh, in Anguilla, for example. Anguilla is a, a small island uh, the, at the northeastern uh, tip of the Caribbean, um, just north of St. Martin. Uh, it's about an hour's flight east from uh, San Juan, Puerto Rico. Uh, it's a community of about 15,000 people on the island, uh, and there are currently no recreational boating slips anywhere on the island, uh, while St. Martin is arguably the epicenter of the superyacht community in that area, six miles to the south. So when we, uh, we, were, we were engaged by the uh, government of Anguilla to look at the opportunity to incorporate limited uh, superyacht facilities and boating facilities into the island as a way to uh, help um, you know, be a catalyst for growth in their economy, um, but also to help solve some problems. And so there's, for example, there's a, a great community called Sandy Ground on the north side of the island um, that where there's a great opportunity to have a, a, a large marina facility in a bay that's tucked in behind this little community. The community is on a little spit of land that might be, you know, 300 feet wide. And it's just a few feet above sea level or a few feet above the water at high tide. Uh, no question over the next 50 years that neighborhood is going to be submerged and gone if nothing happens uh, due to sea level rise. Uh, in the past, that community has been a little reluctant to to take seriously the idea of, a, of somebody building a marina uh, in this internal bay behind them. Uh, but having engaged with the community during the design process, we talked about how if that marina gets constructed, um, we'll have to do dredging to, to create the appropriate water depths. Uh, that's going to create a source of materials where we can actually raise the entire neighborhood, um, raise it up out and above sea level rise. So the idea is to is to leverage uh, this private investment into something that does a lot of public good in terms of protecting this really imp historically important neighborhood. Um, and what's most important about uh, Anguilla as a draw um, for boaters is it's that character of the community that's so precious. It's the, the little restaurants and the little nightclubs and the 
where the musicians are. Um, it's, it's not about building something new to replace what's there. It's about preserving what's there, but protecting it from sea level rise. Our first sponsor on today's show is Dune Doctors out of Pensacola, Florida. Dune Doctors is a dune consulting and restoration company. They work all along the Gulf Coast. DuneDoctors.com for more information. That's right. Frederick Barrett and her team at Dune Doctors, experts in natural restoration with native dew plants. Dune Doctors, uh, TI Coastal Services from Wilmington, North Carolina, uh, led by Chris Gibson, an incredibly smart and talented coastal engineer who works with lots of beach communities uh, in North Carolina. Really super firm, done ec- outstanding work. TICoastal.com. Reach out to Chris Gibson. If you're in need of fixing your beach or managing your waterways, TI Coastal Services. And right here in Texas, LJA Engineering, LJA.com. This is a, another great engineering firm. Uh, we've, we've seen their work up and down the Texas coast. It's yeah. always outstanding. They come in on budget. They are responsible. They design... Uh, environmentally sound and thoughtful projects. Uh, Peter? Yep. Led by Bill Worsham in that division, their coastal engineering uh, crew at LJA, great people. Bill and I, back in the day, were in the regulatory side of the equation at the Texas General Land Office. He's sensitive to the rules and the and, and the environment. They do a great job at LJA. That's a that's a great story. And, 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 and I guess now with everything that you work on, that's that's part of what you have to look for. You have to look for the opportunity to create long-term community around the projects that you're working on. Is is that generally the case today? Absolutely. We we focus on um, leveraging private investment and uh, in, in using the economic values generated there to fund really critically important um, infrastructure projects that create the value. A, a good example of that. Um, is in Douglas, Michigan. Douglas is a really small little community of about 2,500 people in the wintertime. It swells to maybe four or 5,000 in the summer um, when, when, the, when our weather is perfect as opposed to the blizzard it is today. Um, they're facing an issue with dredging uh, there um, just because the, the way the conditions of the river that they're on are such that it accumulates a tremendous amount of, of sediment and they have to dredge constantly and it's at a cost that's far in excess of what that community can afford. It might be 10 or $15 million to take care of that dredging. Um, the community also currently has very little public waterfront property. Uh, they own a few small little pieces and it's a community that's not far from Grand Rapids and it's, it faces tremendous development pressure. Um, the community there is, is uh, understandably reluctant to rely on development to be a, a solution to their problems because they're, they're afraid to lose even more access uh, to their waterfront or at least views in this case. So, we worked with the community to say, let's, we need to do a waterfront master plan to understand the big problem is dredging. That's this $10 million, you know, elephant in the room that we have to find a funding source for. We're not going to get that funding from the state of Michigan or, or anybody else. And the only tool we have to respond to that is to leverage the development pressure. Uh, and then if we can't do that, we can also look at grants and things. So we worked with them, with the community to do a public process where they said, Here, here's the list of things that in a perfect world we would have on our waterfront. And what's a little bit different about our planning process is that we add price tags to everything along the way. So people think about the process with eyes wide open rather than ending up with a master plan that's 
you know, it's incredibly expensive. It's a wonderful idea, but we'll never be able to build it. And, and then the moment you say, well, that plan doesn't make sense. They're saying, well, you're not being visionary. Uh, I, I think a plan that you can't afford is something that I call imaginary. Um, visionary is a plan that solves the problem that you have a funding source for. Let me stop here for a second here. And that is, I, I love that price tag approach. Uh, here's, here's, here's my question though. When you have the different items that can go on the waterfront in terms of price tag, is the price tag the price tag the price to the public sector, or is it the the price of what sort of economic contribution it would make to the economy or jobs? Or how do you how do you price it? Well, what we did in this case is is we identified the construction costs, so or acquisition costs. So in this case, they listed off a series of things that added up to about thirty million dollars. Uh, and it was things like we need, uh, we want a much bigger public waterfront. We want to have uh, a Blue Way trail network with a series of kayak launches. We want to acquire a certain number of properties that are currently failed developments that we want to clean up and reclaim as a public waterfront and, and so on. We went through that list and it was about $30 million to do that. Um, we then talked to them about all of the grants that might be available. And, and we, we thought, you know, there might be as much as five or $6 million available in grants to fund some of these things, but still well short of what they really need to do. And none of those actually funded the dredging. So of that $30 million, maybe a third of it, the 10 million was a dredging. What we then said is, okay, if we have these granting opportunities, we have philanthropy opportunities, all the things that we always talk about and hope for and rarely materialize. We said, the one thing we know we have and that we can leverage is this, um, is the development pressure. And the concern, of course, is, is nobody wants to build a, a, a ton of condos to pay for things. But the idea here was if you had to, if you had to uh, get some development to help fund it, and how we would do that is, is you, you leverage the taxable value. So what we know for sure in Douglas, for example, is that a, 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 an individual condo unit, a, a selling price of 500000 in this market is totally reasonable. We worked with the, the government to identify the taxable revenues that that would generate. Um, at Edgewater Resources, we, we do all the consulting, but my partner, Ron, and I, we actually own and invest and develop projects. So we have a, a really intimate knowledge of the development economic side of this. So what we did is we worked with the community to say, if you had a $500,000 unit, that would generate sufficient taxes to fund a revenue bond uh, through a TIF capture, um, would create about $100,000 in construction value over 20 years. So um, we can talk about that in more detail, but the fundamental principle was if you accepted one unit, you could generate a construction value of $100,000 to pay for some of these things on your wish list. We then went through this with a, with a public process where we built three really simple models and we actually used Legos that were uh, scaled exactly to the size of a unit. And we said to, we broke the community into three groups and said, I want you to just decide out of that $30 million, what are your priorities? What, what's most important of that list? And one group instinctively by themselves said, we just want to solve the dredging. And so that's $10 million. And so they had to find uh, a location for 100 units. And where could they put them on this model? And, and by having actually built the physical model, they could actually look down and see, was it blocking the views? Was it, you know, was it, was it creating more problems than it was solving, for example? So the first group did $10 million and they placed the buildings. And you actually look at the model. They did a small amount of buildings and they managed to block all the views. So kind of the worst of both worlds, the least amount of revenue and the most visual impact. The second group by themselves decided to do about $20 million worth and they did a pretty good job. They tucked the um, 200 units that they needed and they tucked some of them to one side and, and still blocked a lot of views. And then the third group decided we want it all. And that if we had to support uh, development, if we had no other outside funding and we had to put 300 units in, where could we put them? And they actually located 300 units 
in such a way that it protected all the views. So going through this process, the community said, look, none of us want 300 units, but if we had to, we could leverage it in such a way we could place them in such a way that it preserves our views, actually creates the funding we need, and we could move forward. And so the community ultimately selected the plan that would allow up to 300 units with the goal of first starting with all the grants. So we've been implementing this plan for the last couple of years. We actually got our first grant. We just acquired a million dollar piece of property, $1.3 million piece of property. It's the first expansion of public waterfront in Douglas in many, many years. And as we move forward, uh, we hope to see many, many more of those things come together because we actually have a funding source that will work. Yeah, if, if, I, if I could say here to, uh, to any of the listeners, um, if you're able to, uh, without uh, pulling over in the car or something, I would encourage you to look uh, Douglas, Michigan up on, the, uh, on, your, uh, on your mapping software. Uh, it's really an interesting community because it offers a lot of opportunities in that the principal downtown of the community is on a large, uh, uh, I guess, uh, area of the Kalamazoo River just before it goes up to the next community, Saugatuck, and empties into Lake Michigan. So the marina that Greg is speaking of in the waterfront has great access to Lake Michigan, but it's sheltered access. It has a kind of an inland harbor. On the other hand, Douglas, the community also extends all the way over as if it were on the bottom of a peninsula to Lake Michigan. So it actually has Lake Michigan frontage as well. And uh, I think, Greg, you were on the eastern part of the of the of the community, which is uh, on the Kalamazoo River. But it's but terrific. It's a terrific community to think about and prototype because there are a lot of different types of opportunities therein. Um, it's not just a straightforward river community because it's right next to Great Lake. It's not exactly Great Lake because it's on a sheltered harbor, and the Great Lake, of course, in Lake Michigan's case, is is, is enormous. So it's uh, it's not too far akin to the ocean. One thing that I would say about Douglas, though, and other communities you've done or uh, you've worked on in the Great Lakes is, you don't probably have to pay as much attention to climate change there because you don't have the ocean rise. Is that a correct uh, assumption there? Well, the the issue with the Great Lakes is, is um, I get asked this all the time because a lot of people don't recognize that the Great Lakes, uh, while we don't have tides uh, of, to speak of, we do have these um, two cyclical changes. One happens every year. Uh, over the course of the year, we have a higher water uh, in August and a low water in July. And, and that moves up and down in a normal year, maybe 12 to 15 inches. Um, uh, in an extreme year, we've seen it change as much as 40 inches. Uh, in one year. That's a lot. Um, it's driven a lot by ice cover. Uh, if you have ice cover on the Great Lakes, you have less uh, evaporation and then the water levels tend to stay more stable. And so with the, the really epically cold winters, when we have uh, great ice coverage, we tend to see the water levels rise. Uh, as, the, as the winters get warmer, though, the, the anticipation uh, in the past was that we would see uh, more evaporation and long-term lower water levels. The the longer term trends happen over a 10 to 15 year cycle. Um, and the, and the water level change over that cycle is about six feet. So, um, currently we are just above long-term average and we just exited a very long period of, of, uh, record low water. Um, well, it was a long period of low water. We actually set a new record low in, in 2013. We're now back up above long-term average. And the thought is, is rather than thinking that we're going to see long-term decrease in water levels on the Great Lakes. Uh, coupled with the warmer winters, we are seeing more active storm events and more wet events. So it seems to be offsetting the evaporation with more uh, precipitation. So the current projection for the Great Lakes, 
and I don't think anybody really knows, but this is what the science seems to be telling us right now, is that we're going to probably stay reasonably close to the current ranges between the, the recognized lows and highs, but the, but the frequency with which the levels change is expected to go up and down much more rapidly than in the past. Um, so it's a different set of issues, um, but it's a bit more defined. We don't anticipate significant rise uh, of, of one or two or three or four feet like we do with sea level. Now, the Great Lakes are, I believe, um, I read are about 20% of the world's fresh water in the, in the Great Lakes are the five Great Lakes. Um, is there much, they're all interconnected, but they are all independent bodies of water. If you if you see a phenomenon in one of them, is it likely to be in the adjacent one as well, or, or can actually the five of them lead totally different lives? Um, with, technically, uh, Lake Michigan and Lake Huron hydrologically are one lake, so they are at the same level at all times. But uh, Superior, uh, Erie, uh, and Ontario uh, are all independent and controlled. Um, we, you do see different things happening. So the, there's something called the Independent or International Joint Commission, excuse me, the IJC, um, that has set some rules recently on, on Lake Ontario that talk about how much water they can allow out of Lake Ontario. Um, and in 20, summer of 2016, uh, we actually saw record highs on Lake Ontario that caused tremendous flooding uh, downstream in Montreal. Um, but it, it was high enough that it was a big problem and it flooded tremendous parts of, of upstate New York and, and Canada, um, but not so high that it triggered emergency releases. And so it was a, this sort of very uncomfortable middle ground where it was causing tremendous flooding uh, in one location, but not high enough to allow us to push the water downstream. It also created a series of flood events in Montreal um, where they would get flooded and then they would dry up for a couple of weeks and then they'd get flooded again. And there were even jokes. I don't think anybody was serious, but there were even jokes saying, you know what, just let the water out. Let us get flooded badly once and get the water down and then we can recover once. Don't make us keep going through these cycles. Um, so you do see that happening uh, somewhat independently. Um, but generally, you do see the lakes tend to trend up and down together, but you can have very different problems uh, on different lakes at the same time. Now, just, just, to, just to acquaint uh, uh, listeners who are less familiar with the layout of the Great Lakes, Lake Ontario is the second to the last, and it's, um, I'm sorry, is the Erie is the second to the last, and, and it, uh, it outlets through the Welland Canal and uh, through uh, uh, Niagara Falls down the Niagara River to Lake Ontario. And then Lake Ontario um, essentially comes down through the Thousand Islands region of upstate New York. And, uh, and of course, it would be southern Ontario, too, at that point. And, and that becomes uh, the, uh, uh, the St. Lawrence Seaway. Is that, is that roughly correct? Exactly. And, and um, it is incredibly fortunate that Canada owns half of the Great Lakes. Um, and I say that uh, simply because if, if the entire Great Lakes were entirely within the bounds of the United States, I'm certain that we would have built a pipeline to Arizona by now. Um, it's an incredibly fragile ecosystem, as huge as it is. Um, the, the IJC and the, the Council of Governments uh, and the Great Lakes have really done a tremendous job of, of protecting the Great Lakes and limiting the amount of water that can leave the watershed to almost zero. Um, and that's critically important to protecting the, the health and ecosystem here. And, and actually, it's quite interesting that, um, at least on the eastern shore, I'm sorry, the western shore of Lake Michigan, uh, the watershed in some cases only extends a few miles inland. Um, so when you say the watershed, we're not, we're talking about, you know, just a, 
uh, a dozen miles from uh, Lake Michigan into uh, Wisconsin, and for the most part, you're uh, you're in the Mississippi's watershed, not the uh, Great Lakes watershed. Exactly. It's not that we don't love our friends in Arizona, but it's 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 such a you know. We, you know, we, we reversed the flow of the Chicago River to drain Lake Michigan into the into the Mississippi eventually down. And I don't think most people realize that it's possible to, to, to do what's called the, the, the Great Loop, where you basically can sail from New York City all the way through the St. Lawrence Seaway or the Erie Canal, come through the Great Lakes, through, through you know, Huron, uh, Ontario, you know, um, uh, Lake Michigan, go into Chicago, go through the canals. Uh, down to the to the different rivers, to the Mississippi, down into the Gulf of Mexico, and then all the way back up the East Coast. Um, so it is an entirely interconnected network of waterways, um, and it's just it's a large, complicated system. And there are some communities like Ottawa, Illinois, which is on the uh, Illinois River, where I uh, have done some work on waterfront planning, and I have seen them uh, actually build accommodations for the loopers uh, that come through every year that are doing that very journey you're describing. I find it remarkable that they have been able to find that. I can't really believe it's true. One kind of boat that would serve them um, the entirety of that pathway. Uh, uh, it, it must be one uh, remarkable boat that you push a button and it goes from one kind of a boat to another. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of a that's kind of a wild and crazy notion that uh, that, that any of us would have done at, at eighteen if we had the uh, we had the uh, wherewithal. Um, yeah, it, 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 you know, when you, when you talk about the differences between um, lakefronts or waterfronts that you're working on, whether it's in the Great Lakes or in rivers or uh, like Douglas or whether it's like the one you mentioned down in the Caribbean, which is on the which is on the Caribbean Sea, uh, is, is there is, are there differences? And you also mentioned inland waterways. Are there differences in how you approach planning in each of those cases that that, that are that are fundamental? Or are they all essentially the same because the process is about people on the land? Yeah, um, there are certainly different technical challenges, uh, mostly res mostly revolving around the, the water levels and dealing with the tides is, is obviously different than dealing with the Great Lakes. Um, our fundamental guiding principles really are, are driven by you know environmental protection. Um, you know, we just we just don't have the luxury of just doing whatever we want any longer. Um, we focus on getting people on the water. Um, we generally don't work on a lot of projects that are about closing the water off. Uh, the, just the value to a community of having access to their water is so much more important in terms of, just from the economic values, the idea of, well, I can charge a lot for a house if I fence it off, um, but the economic values that are generated to making a waterfront public and more accessible, it, it really does something to the vibrancy of the community that makes it much more economically viable uh, to have a public waterfront. So um, that all tends to come together in the, in the same approach is the idea of working with the community to identify priorities about what's important around access and, and how do we share that. But we also focus on, you know, there's, there's the idea of the waterfronts that we talk about with marinas and parks and all those sorts of things and greenways and, and blueways. Uh, that's all great, but there's also, it's really important to remember that we have working waterfronts. Uh, and by working waterfront, we think of in terms of industrial with shipping and commercial. Um, and it's really critically important that we don't push out working waterfronts uh, entirely for favor of these more public recreational waterfronts. Uh, the commercial shipping is incredibly important to the economics of a local community. Um, you, the trickle-down effects of losing that are often not thought of in terms of you know, if you have a bulk transfer facility where construction materials and road grading materials and salt are coming in, if you lose that, the cost of construction of everything in your community just went up by some um, unmeasurable percentage. 
um, but it's there and it's real. Um, these things can be put together in the same place. Uh, we've done a lot of work in the city of Waukegan uh, in Illinois. Um, in Waukegan, there's a, a history of a pretty incredible contamination, uh, a lot of super fun sites, and they spent the last 35 years cleaning it up, and it's remarkably clean today. Uh, they're in the process right now of sort of changing uh, the perception of their community because people still think of, of it as it was and not as it is today. Um, and, you know, I live in St. Joseph, Michigan, which is a beautiful little sandy little beach uh, in the southwest corner of Michigan. Um, and, you know, I've, I've had people in Waukegan say, well, we would love to be like St. Joe, but we have all this commercial shipping and we'll never have the, the great, you know, quaint character and recreational character that St. Joe has. Um, and I'm like, oh, well, that's interesting. How many, how many of these uh, big commercial, you know, Lakers do you have? Five, six, seven hundred foot long boats. Oh, well, we get four to six a year. And I'm like, okay, well, that's interesting. We get 30 to 40 of those ships per year into our quaint little port. And what's interesting is people love to see those ships. It's actually one of the biggest draws we have in our community. It's a, it's a really vibrant and integral part of our waterfront. You see the beautiful beaches, you see the beautiful parks, and then you see the beautiful, the ships come in. And it's a fun thing to watch. And, and they are they're enormous. They're like, they're like giant blocks of, they're like Borg moving through water. Um, you're, you're right. Now back to Waukegan for a second. One of the one of the interesting twists about Waukegan um, is is that uh, I think it is now um, decidedly a majority uh, Hispanic community. It's a community of over a hundred thousand, just over a hundred thousand at this time, making it the largest uh, Hispanic community perhaps on the uh, on the Great Lakes, um, at least uh, at least on Lake Michigan and in uh, Lake Huron. Um, is is there are there any differences that you have found in in how Different populations want to use waterfronts, um, or or is is it just a common thing for all of us? Yeah, um, it's, again, it's hard to generalize, but as as uh, in my experience, um, there's definitely a much more intense use of public recreational spaces uh, from Hispanic or Latino communities. Uh, they just have a, a culture that's driven more about engaging in these public spaces. I don't know precisely why that is, um, but in Waukegan, it's interesting not only. Uh, you, as you said, it's a majority Latino population, but there's also a lot of folks from the other communities in Chicago, uh, Polish in particular, that really have a really strong presence in Waukegan's using the, using the beaches and they come up from Chicago. So um, I think there are some communities that are just more naturally drawn to using public spaces for family events and family gatherings um, that might not be the same as others. Um, but, you know, fundamentally, the, you know, the, the technical issues, the safety issues and in, in creating access um, it, that's really about drawing people to the community and making sure that you, know, you know, the biggest thing that's happened in the Midwest is the loss of so much of our manufacturing and so many of our communities, it's, it's the Rust Belt and all this stuff is gone and communities are transforming themselves to really focus on their natural resources. Because fortunately, one thing we're not going to lose is Lake Michigan. The Great Lakes are not going to go away. We can't export the, the Great Lakes to, to uh, China or some other place where those jobs have gone. Um, and so by turning uh, to those resources as, as a real value creator, um, that has made a huge, huge difference for these communities. Well, you, you actually made a really good point. I'm glad you did about the way that a lot of Hispanic populations at this time, and this may change, um, uh, how they use how they use waterfronts and public parks and such, you know, in groups as opposed to individuals. Because I think a lot of people, when they think about a waterfront development, um, you know, I grew up in Boston, and I think of people going for a walk along the along the harbor. Uh, you know, in pairs or small groups or, you know, um, one or two individuals. I don't think of there being a big party on the waterfront in the same way 
than I have seen in, as you have, in Waukegan. So I, I, I think it's kind of useful. Is, is there something you might say about the idea of how people use the waterfront um, as individuals, as, as a couple, as small groups, or as large groups? There's really a lot of human utilization of the waterfront, and they require different structures in some cases, do they? Well, they, they do a little bit. But one of the things from an urban design and a sort of a, a public space design, a, the design of the public realm, it's, it's, <laughs> there's sort of a, a, an American-style approach to things is we tend to build these very purpose-specific spaces. They're really great at solving this one particular need, you know, an amphitheater, for example. Um, and that's great. When the amphitheater is in use and everything's happening, it's perfect for that. Um, and then when the amphitheater is not in use, you end up with this sort of big empty space. Um, in, in a lot of European communities, um, you often see they just simply don't have the space um, to, to support such purpose-specific facilities. And what they do that I think is a really important thing is they build their spaces uh, that, are, that are designed for multiple uh, types of uses uh, in, in a certain day, for example. So a waterfront edge condition, maybe in a, in a, a European community and a waterfront might be in the morning, this, this waterfront promenade might be covered with, with the, the fishermen may have come back and they're selling fish, for example, right there on the promenade. And, and then, you know, once those folks have, have gone home for the day at lunchtime, you know, it transforms into sidewalk cafes. And then in the afternoon, maybe that goes away. And, and it's more about the evening entertainment. And the space has a different use two or three times a day. And it's designed specifically to, to support a multitude of uses and be much more flexible. And then you think about that, that, that can also occur not just during the times of the day, but during, you know, different phases of different seasons. So, for example, it has a different use in the spring than it does in the summer or the winter. Um, so as it relates to how an individual uses it or groups use it, I think it's important to think about that designing spaces for multiple, a multiplicity of users, uh, users and uses um, is the right way to go. And it's, it's more cost effective and it's really more vibrant and people seem to really react positively to those spaces. I, I think you're right, and part of part of the fault lies on the American approach to planning, which, in a lot of cases, city planning is very explicit in saying this area is um, is is for housing, this area is for commerce, this area is for office or some sort of a distribution of uses. So we're very clear about things having having what their primary use is. Whereas, um, you know, over many more generations in Europe, they have layered in. Um, many different uses and pretty much every, you know, block of most uh, European cities is a mixed use block because it is. Uh, it just has become that over, over many generations. One thing that you suggested at though is, is the idea of a working waterfront. And I wonder, does it seem to you as it does to me that, that we've had a rise in ideas like putting things on barges and European uh, harbors uh, in large measure because they're still working harbors? Um, they, they seem to have more going on in their harbors than most Americans do. Is that because we have many more harbors than they do, or, or am I just uh, flat out wrong in that? What do you think? Well, um, we're seeing more of that, um, particularly in more dense urban areas. Um, we, just, we just tend to have so much more space in the States than they do in, in Europe. But when you, you look at New York Harbor as a good example, um, that, that's a space where the density is such that um, there's just way more people per per linear foot of waterfront. And so they have to make better use of it. So there are, are, are restaurants, um, you know, Buzzy's River Cafe down in Brooklyn, for example, right underneath the Brooklyn Bridge um, is on a barge. And it's one of the one of the nicest restaurants I've ever been to. Um, it's on a barge like that. You see barges being used, like we talked earlier, for, for you know, nightclubs and entertainment, where people actually take, uh, take um, 
boats out to, to visit it. You actually go out on a, on a tender to get to there or you, or you moor your boat alongside. Um, we've seen barges used to create, uh, you know, to hold movie screens so that you can have people sitting on the shore, um, uh, you know, using a park facility, but looking out at a movie screen uh, mounted on a barge, for example. So we are seeing more of that, but again, it tends to be, you know, the cost of putting stuff on a barge um, tends to be justified more when there's just no other space available. And, you know, a lot of communities, you know, they, they, they still have more land than, than uh, it's still more cost effective to put it on land. But I think that will change and continue to evolve. And one, one thing that we see in Europe a lot are, are, is tourism on rivers and tourism, you know, the different barge tours that we see uh, pretty much after every, uh, every other PBS show in, in the U.S. advertised, uh, the uh, Viking and, and groups like that. Um, it, it, it doesn't really seem as if, as if uh, the, uh, uh, the, the sort of river tour system, the, uh, uh, the sort of port-to-port tour where you could do a port-to-port boat, you know, along the east coast uh, of the U.S., that doesn't seem to have taken off as much in this country. Uh, can, can you think of any reason why that is? Or, or do you think it's simply that we have, you know, greater access to wonderful, beautiful, wide open ocean? So we tend to send our people out that way uh, when it comes to cruises. Um, that's interesting. Uh, we are seeing an increase in that sort of uh, that type of cruising in the Great Lakes where people are choosing to go through the Great Lakes and stop at a variety of ports along the way. Um, we, we've done waterfront master plans for, for many communities, and that's, that's always a conversation about is there, is there a way that we can attract um, attract those cruise boats to come to us? Um, and that really comes down to the vibrancy of the community and the convenience of the location more than anything. But So I think it is growing some. Um, I, don't, I don't know the market well enough to, to describe why it would be uh, you know, driven more. We just, um, you're right, we just don't see as much of it as we have, but it is growing. Well, I know on the Great Lakes, some of the ones we, we have seen uh, over the last uh, decade or more uh, have been German flagged vessels that are essentially bringing Germans over here uh, because the Germans enjoy doing it at home and they're looking for something new or a new place to do it where they haven't been before. And a lot of Great Lakes cities have a great German heritage heritage that they can plug into with, uh, with uh, short stays. Um, are there any other waterfront amenities or waterfront elements? I, I really appreciate your conversation about uh, the uh, uh, your comments about the uh, about the working waterfronts because more than most people that I, I've, I've had the pleasure of working with you really do seem to have an awareness of of of, of working waterfronts and the importance of keeping those viable and, and not just sweeping them away as some cities have. Yeah, I think I think that's that's very important. A lot of you know sometimes some ill-informed plan commissions you know tend to think that if if we could just get those big ugly dirt piles out of here we'd be so much better off and they don't they just don't see the economic value there. Um, you know, from a development perspective, it certainly to me seems critical that we have as broad an economic base as we can. Um, so that's important. And then, you know, consolidating and making sure that those are as effective as they can be uh, co-located where appropriate and put in the right places. Um, so certainly that's a big issue. But I think another another side of things that we haven't talked much about today is is the paddle sports. Um, again, creating access for as many people as possible. You know, the perception that recreational boating is a very expensive pastime, and, and, and certainly it's it's not for everybody. It, it does have some costs. Uh, it's not as expensive as most people think. Um, but the most cost-effective way to get people out on the water is to rent them a paddleboard or rent them a kayak or rent them a canoe. Um, and, you know, you can buy any of those things for under $1,000 and, and throw them on the roof of your car. Or you can go to a number of places and, and rent them for 20 bucks an hour or 15 bucks an hour. Um, what's interesting about that is is – is this whole idea of we all know about greenways and these bike trails and we're creating a, a network of blueway trails 
uh, where it's basically about a series of destinations for one to paddle to. So Douglas and Sagatuck Harbor is a great example where you can do that. There are people that are actually paddling the shoreline of the Great Lakes, which is uh, an incredible thing. Um, we're working at a, a marina in Frisco, Colorado, up at elevation 9,017. Uh, this is a marina where more than half of their revenue is generated from renting, uh, renting small boats and paddle boards and kayaks and, and getting people on the water. Uh, it's a very low barrier to entry. And um, again, as you focus on uh, creating access, you know, there's a lot of requirements of, of ADA, for example, Americans with Disabilities Act, about you know, how you create a, a, an accessible recreational boating facility. What's interesting about ADA is it does a great job of making docks accessible, but it does a, a pretty mediocre job of making the boat accessible. I, I can make an accessible dock that gets you right to the edge of a boat, but you might not be able to get from the dock to the boat uh, because of the water level or the way the boat's situated. So um, we've actually looked at some pretty innovative ideas of creating adjustable platforms that allow uh, a user, somebody who has whatever their mobility impairment might be, to adjust the platform elevation to whatever boat they're trying to get on to whatever water level it currently is, whatever the tide's doing or whatever the, the water levels are. So um, really pushing the boundaries of what's possible and making things as easy as possible for people to use and accessible as possible, going well beyond ADA. Um, and then really focusing on you know using those activities to create the lowest cost access to the water. Because my goal is to get as many people on the water as possible. Uh, they're on the water, they value it. Uh, it makes it easier for us to get projects funded and built um, the more people we can get to use them. Yeah, I, I appreciate the uh, the whole paddle sports thing because, uh, you know, we, we look at the numbers and they're only uh, no one of the paddle sports with more than three percent participation rate of the American population. But that's largely because it's hard to actually get into that. Um, you know, you have to have a boat available and you have to have a place where the boat is welcome. You have to have your water trails that you're describing. So I think over time we're going to see an increase in participation rates. Um, I, I, I was uh, in um, uh, I was in uh, what's his name in, in the Outer Banks of uh, uh, of North Carolina recently, and uh, I was in a Walmart. Uh, and right next to me there was a father and a son talking about buying this kayak, which the son very much wanted to buy. And the father finally said, "It's it's either we buy the kayak and use that on this vacation, or I'm going to buy you tickets to a water park, uh, and we're going to go play in the water park." And the irony for me was uh, the water park was a project I worked on, but I was rooting for the kayak, and that's who won. So they, uh, they won the kayak, and, and presumably they spent their vacation. And because the Outer Banks are great for uh, kayaking, uh, I, I hope they had a great time. Well, the, other, the other nice thing is it's a, you know, we like to focus on, you know, when we think about activating waterfronts um, and job creation and business creation is, is we like to, the other thing we like to do in America is we really like our rules. We really like our zoning. We really like our regulations. And, and, and those things are important for health and safety and welfare and all that. And, and I get it. Um, but it's really nice to create opportunities for these sort of, I call them ephemeral businesses, this idea that, you know, if somebody wants to start a kayak rental business, you know, the barrier to entry as a, as a business, that's, that's reasonably low, you know, and it's a way for somebody to start doing it. They can do it out of a trailer. They can do it out of the back of a pickup truck. And I can, I can think of a dozen businesses in, in West Michigan alone where that happens. Um, it, it's an opportunity for somebody to start a business and create some economic activity and sort of dip their toe into this thing without taking a huge risk. And it, it's, it's like starting a restaurant by, by first starting with a food cart and then a food truck and building up a following before you make that investment in bricks and mortar. Um, and we think it's important that communities make those things possible. I mean, obviously, you have to be smart about it and be safe. Uh, but to make it more possible for small businesses to get started, to provide these cool, interesting things, because 
ultimately that's what, what people, when they visit a little community, uh, we do tons of visioning with communities. And we, I always ask folks, you know, close your eyes and think about your favorite waterfront community. Think about your favorite place that you've ever been to. And everybody always does a good job of that. And they've always got some special place. And then I try to ask me, you know, well, you know, tell me about what's special. What do you remember? And it's almost always, it's almost always some special shop, some little special space. Um, you know, it's never about the new Starbucks, you know, nothing wrong with Starbucks, but nobody really cares. There's a million of them. They care about the little coffee shop that was run by the, the special person that they met, or they care about the cool little space that, you know, it, it's something special and unique. Um, and it's one of a kind. And those things are created by locals. And that's what people remember. And it's that authenticity that drives people to communities uh, to come back. And it, it creates that special environment. And, you know, that always ties right back into parking. Nobody ever tells me about, oh, it was easy to park there. And we always have that battle about parking on the waterfront. And, and my argument is if you're a successful waterfront community, you will automatically have a parking problem. That's a sign of success. The only parking problem I worry about in, in waterfront communities are, are really empty parking spaces in, in October and, and in early spring. You know, we need to find ways to extend the season, particularly in the Great Lakes and the northern climates, to extend the season beyond 100 or 120 days and, and build more vibrant communities. And I think you do that by building a, a broader base of local businesses. Actually, one one of the things when you first started talking about um, about the canoe and the paddle rental uh, operations, my first thought was, well, in the U.S., we've uh, adopted a lot of the European models for zip lines, obstacle courses, bouldering, and the like. And uh, there are a few companies that have come over from Europe, you know, particularly the U.K. <coughs> excuse me, that are establishing chains of that uh, chains of those operations, so that they have as many as twenty five or thirty locations in the U.S. And I thought, well, that might be a good model. But then I thought back to all of the different paddle sports uh, operations that I have seen over time and have become familiar with as businesses. And, and I realized that they usually are driven by one or two people who are really just intent on doing it and doing it well. And they know they know and love what they're doing. Um, so it, it does seem as if the paddle sports, when you want to introduce that to a waterfront, you probably want to find the, the individuals locally who are willing to get into it and to really make it, you know, their, at least their uh, seasonal work. Um, and, uh, and, and, and that's a good thing because that's a small business that cares about how to do things effectively on a local waterfront in their own communities. And there are some places where it does seem as if, uh, the waterfronts are populated by lots of small businesses. And there are some where it seems as if the waterfronts are populated by larger businesses. And I wonder sometimes if the character of the places varies going back to your point at the end there about how. When you think about the special places that you've seen, you know, what are those special places and is there some way to characterize them? And I would guess that by and large, they're, they're the smaller businesses and not the larger chains. Um, is, there, is there anything else you think you want to add about, you know, how do you invigorate a waterfront? And I think your point about seasonality is, is critical because to make a lot of businesses work, you have to have more than 110, 120 days of summer. Yeah, I think... Um you know, I think of focusing on a, a diversity of uses, a diversity of business types. Certainly, I'm a, I'm a big supporter of more local businesses. I think that is more attractive. And, and, you know, creating an authentic character, it's not creating one, it's building on what's there. You go into a successful community. I'm working in South Haven, Michigan, for example. We've worked in, you know, Oswego, New York and, and other places where you come in and there's, there's something special about the community it's really critically important to to understand that and and work with it and build on it and not try to in, not try to import some other character from some other place. Um, we do a lot of visioning and we ask people, you know, uh, you know, tell me about places that you like and we'll go visit them and we'll show pictures and we can understand the 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 sort of the principles that are in effect. 
Uh, parking is always a good one. I always tell people, you know, they tell me about their favorite waterfront communities. Um, and, and when we're having the community meeting about what, what they want to build at their waterfront, we hear all about the parking problems. And then when I ask them about all the great other communities they visited and that they want to be like, I've actually done that on Lake Ontario. I've driven around and been to practically every little community on the waterfront in, uh, and on Lake Ontario, Sackets Harbor, and then, you know, Niagara on the Lakes and all these beautiful places. And then I come back and I show the pictures and people always say, yeah, that's what we want to be like. That's what we, we want. To, we want it like that. And then I go, okay, well, where, the, where is the parking? And then they realize that, you know, the parking is something that while it's really important, we need to deal with it. And I'm not saying to just ignore it, but we can't let it be the, the sole driver of everything. And, and I think there are, there are communities, there's examples, um, uh, parts of Sheboygan, Wisconsin, for example, uh, on the south side of the river there, the north side is, is a more vibrant side than the south side. And I think that's in large part because the south side, to me, seems to have been a little bit overly driven by the parking requirements. And what that's done is it's, it's decreased the density of uses right on the south side of the river there. And it's a little bit more about the parking than it is about the uses. And therefore, they don't really have a parking problem because people aren't as drawn to that activity. You go to the north side, it's a little tougher to park and it's much more vibrant, much more dense. And um, I can't park as easily, but I want to spend more time there. And so I think it's important to strike the right balance there. And, and I typically come down on the side of, of I'd rather ask somebody to walk two or three or four blocks. And I think they're willing to do that because you've created a really great community that's exciting. And that two or three block walk is interesting. I'm walking past cool, interesting things and I don't notice the walk. So whereas if I come in and there's a giant parking lot in the middle, I've really lost some of that character. And you know, now I'm going to complain about the walk because it's not a pleasant walk. So. Well, and actually, in the case of Sheboygan, you have an interesting uh, situation. I think is another lesson there, and that is the north side of the river, which is more vibrant, as you say. Um, it has its energy drawn from its historic downtown, which is sort of renewed a little bit to the north. So the north side of the river is kind of an extension of that downtown to the river when they suddenly discovered that they had one and they could make an attractive asset. Whereas the south side of the river is is the redevelopment of a very large industrial peninsula. Um, that doesn't have driving forces behind it and is, as you say, entirely designed, you know, in, in recent times and, and therefore has all the parking requirements and all of the sort of city planning requirements that maybe aren't so cleverly designed to create tourism destinations as they are cleverly designed to provide parking for vehicles from uh, outside the area. The, the one thing that you mentioned, and you mentioned Oswego, one of the things that I recall from Oswego that was very fascinating at least to me was, and I think it really got you going, was the idea that there was a uh, um, that there was a commercial fishing fleet um, in, 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 in Oswego that had some, if I have the number right, and correct me if I'm wrong, um, some 50 boats of where you could go sport fishing, and people would take you sport fishing, and, and I don't think anyone really expects that kind of activity on, on, uh, on Lake Ontario. They think of that as something you do in Florida or in places or the Carolinas where there might be sport fishing. But there is sport fishing on the Great Lakes as well. And that was an industry that I remember that you uh, were very careful to try to protect. Any any further on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's 70 boats. And um, again, it's so it's 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 mostly charter fishing. I, I, when I think of commercial fishing, that, that tends to, to me is, is you see more of that um, from tribal um, you know, historic tribal fishing where they're actually, you know, uh, you know, fishing to sell to market, whereas this is mostly charter fishing where I want to go and I want to do the fishing myself. Um, and that, that is, that's an industry that really follows, uh, the, the quality of the fishery, of course. Um, and, and the Eastern half of Lake Ontario is, is at this point incredibly successful in maintaining that fishery. 
uh, where we've lost a tremendous amount of it. Typically in a community um, on Lake Michigan or Lake Huron, you might see a half a dozen or a dozen charter boats versus 70 in Oswego. Um, so the, what's great about that is, again, that's a, bu- a business with a, a relatively low barrier for entry in terms of, of cost. And it's, it's really driven by these personal relationships that these guys um, build over time. And, um, you, know, th- you know, how charter fishing uh, integrates with the rest of a public waterfront and a marina, it's a really vibrant thing to see. And people want to come down and they're excited to watch the, the boats. And we often make the fish cleaning stations a, a, a public attraction. It's, you know, some people are just really interested in watching them clean the fish. Um, other people find that gross, <laughs> but people typically are really intrigued by that. Um, and again, it's a way for somebody not they'll have to eat the filet later. Thank you. Exactly. Exactly. But it's a way for people who are not typically boaters to get out on the water. Um, any opportunity for community to create some way to get on the water, um, for somebody who's not regularly a boater is a huge draw. Uh, a lot of people find the Michigan Maritime Museum in South Haven by Googling South Haven boat ride. They don't even know that the museum is there and it's an incredible museum. We're working with them to, to expand and, and almost quadruple their capacity. Um, but they Google South Haven boat ride to find out that, oh, I can go ride the Lindy Lou, which is a little, that's kind of a Truscott boat type thing, which is a small you know passenger boat of about 20 people that goes up and down the river. Or they can ride on the Friends Goodwill, which is a, a, t- a historic tall ship and actually go out on a tall ship. Uh, but a tremendous amount of people choose to stop in South Haven simply because there's they can easily know that, hey, we're going to go. We're going to get on a boat ride. It's going to be 30 minutes. It's going to be affordable. And and that's a reason I'm going to stop there versus stopping up in Sagatuck or, or, or maybe St. Joe or another place. And again, Anything that gets somebody to pull off the highway and step into your community, I think, is of value. And I think it's a, a really um, something that, that most communities don't do enough of. We, we recognize, we, we try to get folks to create any opportunity to get even a little water taxi that might take a 15-minute boat ride. For somebody who's grown up boating like myself, uh, yeah, I don't care. But for somebody who's never been on a boat, this might be a kid's, you know, they might think they're pirates of the Caribbean and having this incredible life experience being on this 20-minute boat ride. And you ride the Friends Goodwill from the Maritime Museum, and that's something you're never going to forget. Once again, uh, this is Dan Martin with Next Generation Waterfronts. I've been talking with Greg Wycap. Uh, Greg's company is Edgewater Resources, uh, based out of St. Joe, Michigan. Um, thanks, Greg, for your time. And uh, and once again, how do people get in touch with you? You can find us at edgewaterresources.com. Um, you can always email at gycamp at edgewaterresources.com. You'll find that on the website. Thanks again. Uh, no, thanks, Dan. I appreciate the opportunity. It's fun talking, talking with you.